One man's trash is another man's treasure. No couple probably embodies that better than Dave and Aaron Sheffield. Writing for Business Insider, Sophia Ankle opens an article about them saying, when Aaron and Dave Sheffield are not busy with their full-time jobs, they're rummaging through garbage. The couple from Buffalo, New York, have been dumpster diving for more than 10 years and are now making an average of $3,000 a month from selling the items they find in the back lots of large depot stores. And coincidentally, both Dave and Aaron did this dumpster diving before they were married, but can you guess where they met one another? Yeah, at a dumpster. Over the years, they've found together many valuables. There was a notable haul of textbooks that was worth over $1,000. They found a designer purse that was worth several thousands. Again, it's astonishing. What someone looked at and said, oh, this is trash. They didn't want it. They threw it away. The Sheffields find treasures. What looks like trash to one person, it may prove to be a treasure to another. Now, interestingly enough, do you realize that the gospel is like that? That Christ is like that? That indeed, many hear the gospel message, and they find nothing interesting about it. They find nothing exciting about it. Maybe they're even offended by it. They don't want it. It's detestable. It stinks. They mock it. They ignore it. They don't want to hear about it. They'd throw it away if they could. It means nothing to them. They reject Christ and his message, and only, of course, we know this is a doomed path. There's no hope for your soul apart from Jesus. We must not reject him. This is the message that Christ has given us. That's what we must proclaim. And that's what we affirm. We are called to the world, be reconciled to God through Christ. And yet, even as we, his people, know this, that as we've received Christ, we've trusted in him, even though we know this, can we not easily neglect him? Maybe we will not reject him outright, but practically speaking, we shelve him. We stuff him in storage. We're apathetic. We don't really see his usefulness. And at that point, we're at risk of the next time we do the spring cleaning of our soul is casting him aside, casting out our greatest treasure because we've forgotten what he means to us. And so that's the word as we turn to this text from Matthew chapter 21, verses 33 through 46. I mean, it is a call once again, you can't reject Jesus. And for us that have received him, you can't neglect him either. He needs to be your greatest treasure. You need to see, you need to fight for joy in Christ to see that he is the prize that he truly is. You need to see him for as he actually is your soul's greatest treasure. And then you'd keep him there, lest you be diverted and taken away. And so what we'll find in this text from verses 33 through 46, we're going to find three commands that will work to raise our estimation, that will raise our value, so to speak, our treasuring of Christ in our heart. If we do these things by the Spirit's help, we will see truly Christ as the treasure and we would never drift from Him. And it begins here, if we're going to not reject Christ but treasure Him, how will we raise our estimation of Him? You need to first... See your persistent guilt before him. Verses 33 through 41. Because Jesus, remember, he's riding into Jerusalem and he's come in as a king. Yes, he was riding peacefully on a donkey, but he's instantly making war with religion. He's making war in the temple. He was turning over the tables of the money changers. He was calling out for the Jewish leaders and really for the nation as a whole. He was showing them, your worship is empty. It's worthless. It's only in word. It's not in deed. I go and look for fruit and I don't see anything, despite all of the religious garb. 
And thus far as Jesus has been hitting that nail, banging it with a hammer like a bell, the Jewish leaders don't see it. They still don't see it. They're blind to it. May we not be so blind to such temptations in our own heart. Because here it comes. Until we can see our desperate need for Christ, and until we can remember and dwell there that we so desperately need Him because of our sin, because of our rebellion, because of our wandering heart, until you can see that, until you can see how desperate you are, how heinous sin is, until you can see that, you will never see how great and how good and how merciful our Christ is. And even still to all of that, despite all of Jesus teaching so far as He's been in the city, the religious leaders don't get it. They don't see it. And so he puts another parable before them, another story, an illustration to come alongside the reality, to show them, to try and be a mirror, to reveal to them the depth of their sin and how they have been so blind to it and how desperately they need Christ. He showed them that the last time where we ended. He told this parable about two sons, and one was commanded by his father to go out and work in the vineyard, and the son said, no way, but then he changed his mind, remember? He repented, and then he went. Now, the second son said, yeah, I'll go, sir. He had the most honorable language, but he never went. And of course, that was a picture of any of the religious and the self-righteous that feign worship, they feign obedience, but when you come look behind the facade, there's nothing home. And yet they still can't see it. And so he gives them another picture, another parable. And to do so, he reprises this illustration of a vineyard. Let's see it. Let's look at verse 33, Matthew 21. Here, listen to another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard, and he put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it, and he built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. Now, to sum up, looking at verse 33 just alone, what are we supposed to capture and gather about this master and his vineyard? Well, the thing that sticks out to us is that he's investing much in it. Uh, this is not a throwaway investment for him. He's not just saying, well, well, we'll kind of see what happens. He, he is giving his attention, his care, his finances. He's doing all he can to set up this vineyard for success, to bring in a lot of fruit. He doesn't just plant the vineyard. He fences to protect it. He digs a wine press because he's anticipating all the bounty that will come from it. He builds a tower for it for the protection of the workers. He's doing all he can to make this thing succeed. But that's not the only thing that would prove so obvious to the first hearers. Something else would have stood out to them. And namely, it's this. All of this language about a vineyard, a fence, a wine vat, and a tower... That all comes right from Isaiah chapter 5. Again, he's talking to the religious leaders. These guys knew their Hebrew Bible. They knew it really well. They'd probably memorized this section. And as they start hearing all of this language, it is just echoing and banging around in their mind. Oh, I've heard a story like this before. Of course you have. It's right in Isaiah chapter 5. We don't have time to turn there in details. Let me just summarize for you, but mainly this. Isaiah there, he's rehearsing in this illustration God's great care for his people Israel. They are the vineyard, and God's doing everything to set them up to be fruitful for God, such that as the story goes on, the Lord would rhetorically ask, and this is Isaiah chapter 5, verse 4, what more was there to do for my vineyard, the Lord says, that I have not done in it? I can't do anything more for you to make you successful spiritually. He did it all. It lacked nothing of God's care. Only, of course, the problem is 
as they start to recognize, oh, this is like that illustration of the vineyard in Isaiah 5, that shouldn't stir up in their minds affectionate ideas of, of uh, reminiscence about the old things of God. Because as that illustration comes up in Isaiah 5, everything should prove very ominous. Because what Isaiah sets up is this. Yes, I've given you all of these graces. I've given you all of these fruits. I've set you up for success, yet you're not successful. You don't produce the fruit that I wanted you to. And not only in Isaiah 5 do they not produce uh, any fruit, they do produce fruit. It's just sour fruit. It's wicked fruit. It's fruit that is totally uh, worthless. It's, what, it's exactly what he didn't want. And so because that they produced evil fruit, judgment was coming. And indeed, that was the point of that vineyard illustration. It should not be raising up happy thoughts of nostalgia. It should be looming over them like a cloud, this ominous sense of judgment. Now to return to our illustration here in Matthew 21, well, what for? What were they in danger of? Where are they in the wrong? So let's pick it up, verse 34. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. Again, to get his fruit. This is his vineyard. It's his produce. He's done all the investment. It's rightly his. Now, he would have an agreement with these tenant farmers. They enjoy some of the fruit too. They're going to live off the land, but it's not theirs. And he has a right to get a return on his investment. And so he sends some of his, the owner does, send some of his servants from far away wherever he is to come collect on the fruit. Only these tenant farmers, they're going to have none of this. They're going to take advantage of the owner's absence. That he's far away. Look at verse 35. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. That's brutal. But it gets worse. Not getting his fruit, the master, he goes and sends even more servants. Maybe he's even wondering, well, what happened to those guys? Why didn't they come back with the fruit? Well, let me send some more. And so verse 36. And he sent other servants more than the first. And yet these tenant farmers still do not comply with their agreement And it says, and they did the same to them. These tenant farmers have now become like squatters. They're just taking over the land. They're stealing the vineyard. And they're taking its fruits and they're using it for themselves. They're taking it from the rightful owner. And it's so terrible because as more and more servants, more and more messengers... That the the master sends, that means more and more of his servants then get killed, beaten, stoned, or if they return, if they even survive, they return empty-handed back to their master. And so he's had enough of this. Uh, This can't be tolerated. This can't go on. So he's going to send his son to collect, verse 37. Finally, he sent his son saying, as if to show his rationale about what he's doing, they will respect my son, right? The, the idea, I mean, they wouldn't dare touch my son. Uh, he's the rightful heir. This, this vineyard, if it's mine, it's his. Yeah, this is clearly his. There, there's no debate about it. Of course, the tenant farmers might be thinking something like, no, 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 we worked it. We did all the work. We put in all the sweat. This is our produce. This is our vineyard. You can't argue that with the guy who actually owns it, the son. But not only is the rightful heir, but second, they couldn't be so stupid, so brazen to dare touch the master's son. Because you know if you do that, you're bringing the master's wrath upon you. You just know that. They wouldn't be that dumb. 
Or would they? Right? As we find so oftenly, sin makes you stupid. Here it comes. They, they, don't, see, they, they don't see an opportunity or, or as a threat to respect the son and, and finally turn over to the master what's rightfully his. They see an opportunity to take advantage and perhaps even get the vineyard for good. Verse 38. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. That's horrible. It's wicked. They're thieves and murderers. It's evil. And even these self-righteous religious leaders, even they can see this. They can even see how awful the tenant farmers have been. Such that Jesus poses the question now. In verse 40, When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to these tenants? Remember when he started the parable about the two sons? He started it this way in verse 28. What do you think? And then he tells a story. He he wanted them to think about This is a test case. You you need to think through this scenario. Maybe you have the discernment about what's going on here. And so now he brings the second parable, another scenario. He wants to know what they think about it. Again, verse 40. When the owner of the vineyard comes, what's he going to do to these tenants? And as blind as they are, the religious leaders, they get it. They, They understand those wicked tenant farmers need to be punished and brutally so. Right? Verse 41. They said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. It's so obvious. Yeah, you got to punish those guys. And yeah, you got to give that to different faithful farmers. The answer is so clear. Of course, what is apparently not yet very clear to them? Jesus is talking about you. You are the wicked ones. You are the rebels. It's you. You're the tenant farmers. You're the miserable wretches that deserve a miserable death. But they're blind to their sin. And what does blindness to sin look like? It doesn't mean you can't see sin. You just never see it in you. You see it on other people just fine. You might even see the same sins on other people and go, oh, tisk, 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 man. Can you believe those guys? When all the while you can't see it in you. Hence, the scenario works a lot like that incident with the prophet Nathan and David. Remember that? David had been with Bathsheba, and he had had Bathsheba's husband killed. And so God sent Nathan to prophet to confront David. And Nathan doesn't just come to David and say, hey, you're sinning, stop it. He tells this story. He tells the story about the sheep who gets stolen, the one prized sheep that gets stolen. And David's response is outrage as he hears it. Whoever that guy is, he needs to be punished. And then what does Nathan say? You are that man. And then it finally clicks for David. The hypocrisy of his heart is revealed. Only with the religious leaders, they don't see it yet. They don't see it yet. And what makes their blindness and evils all the more egregious is what's been set up by this whole parable, what Jesus is telling them. You guys are in big trouble. Because of two things. One, God set up the vineyard. He set you up for success spiritually. He's done everything he could to have you succeed spiritually. And you came up bankrupt or worse. And more than this, and here's where the parable comes to fore in a new way. I've repeatedly sent 
my servants. I sent my messengers. I sent my prophets. And one by one, you kept rejecting them. You kept shooting the messengers, killing them. I graced you with everything you needed. But back to verse 35, you wouldn't listen to the message. And so then you shot the messengers. You beat them, killed them, and stoned them. And more than this, it's going to culminate. Of course, he's foretelling what's about to happen as he tells this parable. Because Jesus, the Son of God, sent from the owner in heaven, he's going to be betrayed and crucified and killed outside the city walls. And going back to verse 39, that's what makes those words so ominous. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Just as Christ will be crucified outside the city walls. And so for such a rebellion, what should they expect when the master comes? As if to say, you tell me the answer. Because they did. In verse 41, they told him exactly what was going to happen. What should they expect when the master comes? Judgment. A miserable death and torment. Miserable wretches to be tormented that have no clue of the danger they're in because they can't see their own guilt and they can't even see that they're compounding their guilt by continuing to silence and stone the Word of God. Doing whatever they can to silence the conviction of God's Word. And even still, they can't see it. And that's it. If you can't see how guilty you are before God, you'll never see that you really need Jesus. Whatever you think Jesus is. He'll never mean that much to you. He'll certainly never be a treasure that you'd lay everything down for. If Jesus is just an add-on in your life, something to make your life a little better, something to make your life a little more comfortable, something to pick you up, something to to give you something to do when you're down, uh, he'll never be your treasure this if he's not making you feel better and that your circumstances are going. And name me this, if he's not making you feel better in that moment, if he's not giving you the marriage you want, if he's not giving you the obedient kids you want, if he's not giving you the job you want, the life you want, what are you going to do? You're going to go elsewhere. You're going to try and find the things that work. Because you're after, how can I feel better? How can I cope with this? That's not the message of Christ. He's not trying to help you cope in this world. He's saying, you are guilty before God. You're doomed without me. You are guilty and you've mocked the creator and he's coming back. You don't need a psychologist or psychiatrist or some drug to make you feel better. You need a redeemer. You need a deliverer and savior. God's wrath is coming and you're not ready. And more than this, you've spurned his grace over and over. You've shut out his word. You've defied his counsel. You've rejected his teaching. Only what you're doing is piling up more guilt for yourself. Can you see it? You're in great trouble. And of course, the solution is you've got to own that guilt. Not try and block it out. You've got to see it for what it is. You need to hear that word. You need to have hope then. You need to repent. That means you need to turn from your sin. You need to own it and go to Christ. Be converted, be changed. But as we consider our own estimation of Jesus, whether it's high or low, and maybe this morning you've been a Christian for some time, maybe it's not where it should be. And maybe you're starting to lose sight of your need for Him. Well, let this be a reminder. May this be a reminder to look honestly before His Word with an open heart.
to really let him probe it all, to have it all, to be Lord of it all. Because if you try and shut out his lordship in spaces in your life, don't think that actually shuts him out. He's still Lord of it. We don't get excuses. We're just pretending at that point. There's no safety in closing your heart to his conviction and to his word to try and pretend it's not there. That's not going to help you. That only is going to deaden and, and make unfeeling your spiritual senses. And actually, it's because of what it does, is it cauterizes those spiritual sentences or, or makes them so they can't feel anymore. You, you, you end up deceiving yourself, thinking, well, maybe I really don't need a Savior. And that's the most dangerous place to be. Because see, in contrast, the more you are aware of your sin, the more you'll treasure the Savior who delivers you from it. Don't lose sight of this. Secondly, hope in His surprising plan. This is the next step to, to raising our, our prize in our heart of Christ. We need to see that there's hope in his plan that he worked for salvation. Verse 42. In other words, you'll never treasure Christ if you see only your sin. The great Puritans used to say, every time you look at your sin, you need to 10 times more go back to Christ. And that's true because you need to do both. And that's what he's calling us to do here. Yes, see your sin, see how hated it is, but then run to me. And that's where he directs the attention of these religious leaders. That there's hope with him, even in our great sin. So to pick things back up, Jesus had just told this story about these wicked tenant farmers. Only the Jewish leaders, they couldn't see it. They couldn't see that it was about them, that he was talking about them. They've been blind to it. And so to to pull off the veil, he goes right back to Scripture. He's going to connect the dots for them. And he does so by turning to Psalm 118, verse 22. And he quotes it for us in full, verse 42 of Matthew 21. So let's see it. Verse 42. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the Scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Once again, Jesus opens with this phrase, have you never read in the scriptures? And who's he talking to? He's talking to the religious leaders. He's talking to the Hebrew scholars of the day. Of course they had read this. They could recite it back to him verbatim, perfect in the Hebrew. Of course they had read it. They knew it well. But by the question, what is Jesus revealing? Well, yeah, you might understand or you might know the words. You might be able to recite it, but you don't understand it. You've missed something. Well, what was it from Psalm 118 that they had missed? Well, the first truth that Jesus highlights here is that there will be a great rejection, even by the people of God. The stone which the builders rejected. So he's moving from the agricultural metaphor with a vineyard to an architectural one with a construction project. So now you have builders, construction workers, and they're in search of a perfect stone, one that they can use as the cornerstone. This would be the first stone laid that would then set all the angles and set the alignment for the whole building. Everything in this way has to be perfect and straight and plumb and true. And so you can imagine as you go through the rubble pile of rocks, you're trying to find that perfect stone. And there are many from afar that might look good. And so you go up and grab one and you hold it up to the light and you look at it down each angle. Like you might 
a piece of wood from Lowe's and you set it down on the floor and you're, you're trying to see, is it true or is it warped? And they expect each one closely and then they go, nah, not this one. We need another one. Oh, let's put that one. That one might work, but I need a better one. Keep grabbing another. Nah, not that one. And in this case, they, they picked up this particular stone. They looked at it from every angle and said, no way, it's this one. And they reject it. And they throw it away. Put it back in the rubble pile. It's trash. Now this rejection, how does this connect to what Jesus had been teaching us in the parable thus far? But what did we see rejected? It culminated with the rejection of the owner's son, didn't it? Remember back to verse 39 in the parable. They, they cast the son outside and they killed him. In summary, they rejected him. And who rejected him? Well, the tenant farmers, but now it's the builders. It's you, guys. They looked at Jesus. They heard the calls of Jesus. They heard the claims of Christ. They heard his miracles. Eh. He can't be the Messiah. And so they had him killed. Only there's hope in this text as well. Because not only is there a rejection, but look what happens by the rejection. This is where there's hope for every sinner like us. Verse 42, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Don't you see, it was the very rejection of the stone that makes it become the cornerstone. This is what's so astounding. They're throwing it away, eh, tossing it to the side. Then God takes it like in midair and places it down and says, here is where I will build my people. I mean, can any greater picture of the cross be given than this? That by his very, very rejection, his being betrayed, double-crossed, beaten, and killed is the very rejection that bears the curse to save God's people. In other words, God has a plan, even in the rejection, a plan to save sinners, and one that obviously you never saw coming because you rejected it. And yet it was by the very means of that rejection he brings salvation. Just as the prophet Isaiah predicted. Remember Isaiah 53 verse 3, that beloved passage, which reads, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces in disgust. He was despised and we esteemed him not. But why? Why was he so rejected? But because in this way, he would be punished for all of our sins, because he would be destroyed for our evils. As it goes on, Isaiah 53, verse 5, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds, we are healed. This is the truth of the gospel, isn't it? By his rejection was the very plan that God made us forgiven. We find peace because God made war on his son and at the hands of his own people. The people you would think would be most ready to receive him. You think if anybody would see the Messiah coming, it would have been the Jewish leaders who had the scriptures who knew them backwards and forwards. And yet what was revealed is that the Redeemer was going to be a Redeemer by rejection at the hands of these hard-hearted religious leaders. This was the marvelous plan of God to save. As he goes on again to quote Psalm 118, but the last part, verse 42, this was the Lord's doing, 
and it was marvelous in our eyes. That's the marvel. That's the surprise by the very plan of God. That his being rejected was his way to win. His being cursed was his way to bless and be our salvation. And that was no accident. That was by design. That's how he will love his people and bring them to a relationship with him. So even as the Jewish leaders are revealed to be on the wrong side, you are the guys rejecting the very Messiah. Even as he tells them this, there is hope still. That's why he's telling them. You're playing out the scripture that will bring about the salvation of his people, but you need to see and embrace this cornerstone you'd rejected. You need to turn. You need to see you're wrong. See where we're going again. And indeed, some of them will, which is astonishing. They'll remember these things when they come to their mind and they will come to Christ. This is most pointed on the day of Pentecost. So, of course, Jesus dies for sin. He rises from the dead. He ascends to the Father's right hand and he sends his spirit upon his people. And we call that Pentecost. That happened at Pentecost. And Peter then, in response to that, because the crowds are like, dude, what's going on? Are these people drunk? Why are they speaking in all these languages? What's happening here? Peter stands up to preach and tell them, no, this is the fulfillment of the prophecies of Joel, which also says, blessed is the one who turns to the Lord and believes upon him. He ends his sermon proper with this word from Acts chapter 2, verse 36. He says, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, who this Jesus who you crucified. Whoops. You were looking for the Messiah. You were looking for the Christ. Oh, and he came and you killed him. You missed it. You rejected him. You crucified him. And now that with the Lord working on their heart, They can't but just acknowledge their guilt. It says this, Acts 2.37. Here's the response to that. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? That's the glorious word with our God. Even as he has been rejected by these people, even as as they've turned from him and mocked him and they killed his own son, yet he offers a message of hope still. He's not merely bringing judgment. Oh, by the way, you crucified the Messiah and it's all over. No, they realize by bringing this message, there's hope if they would turn. And that's exactly why they ask, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter tells them, repent, turn, be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. Oh, the glory of the gospel. That even in so great a sin, a total lack of judgment, of evil, of jealousy, that they would kill God's own son, there's still hope for them. There's hope if you will turn to Christ, no matter how great your sin is or how great you think it is. I've heard it many times, sharing the gospel on the street. Uh, I recall in particular a time sharing the gospel uh, with a stranger, walked up and talking about the Ten Commandments and have you followed them and this kind of thing uh, to reveal, yeah, you're a sinner and so forth. And uh, I started sharing. He admitted that he'd broken some of the commandments and that, okay, I see what you're saying. God will judge me. And I said, well, there's hope with Christ. He can forgive all of those sins if you'll turn to him. And this man assured me, oh, he can't forgive my sins. If you knew the kind of things I did in the war, you'd know I can't be forgiven. There's no way. It's like the bombs I dropped, 
Mm-mm. Those can't be forgiven. My sins are too big. And he could see it in his face, just the hopelessness. And that with the fear that was in his eyes. I mean, he took it seriously. My sins are too big, he would say. And yet, by the authority of Christ, I beg to differ. Your sins are not too big. If those who rejected him and killed him can be forgiven and absolved and received if they repent, anyone can be brought in. If Paul, who was Saul, killing church members, can be shown mercy, you can be shown mercy this morning. If you think that your sins really are too big, you have yet to reckon with what it means that God died on the cross and rose from the dead for your sins. Find refuge with Him. Because get this, whatever you're feeling of your guilt this morning, whether you've never turned to Christ or whether you're in Christ and you've messed up royally this past week, however guilty you're feeling, if you can still hear my voice, your rejection of Christ means it's not too late with a Christ like this. He's giving out His gospel word of good news. Will you turn and believe Him? That the cross really did pay it, that it's enough. There's still hope to be found in repentance because Christ is a cornerstone who came to be landed and deliver sinners. But you have to own your sin. You must confess it. You can't be pretending it's not there. You can't excuse it. You can't justify it. You can't be blaming it on others. But you must turn to Christ and that his promises are true that the cross was enough. For there mercy is found. So, will you dare to hope in that mercy? Will you dare to to think in your mind that this word is true, that he really died for me? Can you be surprised by this grace that would forgive, that's truly amazing to forgive even me who've rejected him? That even despite the ways you've strayed from him, maybe this week, that he would still take you back. He will repent, confess, turn, come. Little else will endear him to your soul to see that he would still love you because he does in the gospel. Turn and come to him. Yeah, see your many sins, but confess that he's even still a greater savior. Finally, related to that, to endear Christ to our hearts, to whatever illustration you want to use, to to fan the flame of faith and that we treasure Christ all the more, we got to heed this last call, avoid his devastating judgment. See what he's rescued you from. Remember what he's rescued you from. Avoid, repent, and avoid this devastating judgment. So from verse 42 now, we hear that this rejection even was planned. This didn't surprise God. He knew this was coming, and he's even using it for his purposes to deliver and save. So salvation can come through this rejection, yet as he continues, it becomes very clear That does nothing to absolve rejectors who won't repent and trust Him. Yeah, He can bring salvation through this rejection, but He also brings it by those rejectors repenting. And if you don't repent, you're still at war with Him, and there's no hope there. Look at verse 43 then. Therefore I tell you, Jesus says, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. He connects it to what He's been saying all along. Therefore I tell you, That is, in light of what you just heard of the truth in Psalm 118, 
that God even designed for the saving stone to be rejected. But that means I can assure you, just like you saw in the parable, if you reject the son and you stay there, there's no safety for you. God will bring his vengeance upon you. The owner of the vineyard, he's going to come back and punish. I mean, that's what you expected, right? When I told you the story? Remember, that's what came out of their mouths in verse 41 when they answered that, that word problem about the master of the murdered son and the evil tenants. He posed the question in verse 40, what will the owner of the vineyard do to these tenants? And they scornfully said, oh, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. So get this, guys. You're about to do that to God's own son. What do you think is going to happen to you? Buckle up then. God will come and avenge his son. Not only will he take the kingdom from you, but he's going to give it to others, a people that will produce its fruit. They will show its change. It's change wrought in their hearts. And again, that's what Christ has been teaching these religious leaders ever since he came in astride that donkey into Jerusalem. I don't want just your words. I want your heart. I'm after a changed life, a true faith that cannot but change you. That's a humble faith. That means it's a faith that fails at times, but it confesses, it repents, it obeys. That's a kingdom person. And if you don't have that, then you're not in his kingdom. It's really that simple. And if you're not in his kingdom, judgment is coming because that means you're opposing God. And that's what comes out as he looks at the next verse in a very personal way. Notice the singular aspect of this. He talked about taking the kingdom away from you, and that was you all, the nation of Israel. And then he says this in verse 44, And the one who falls on this stone, trips over it, will be broken to pieces. And when this stone falls on anyone, it will crush him. There's no winning opposing the saving stone, Christ. You'll either trip over him and fall to your ruin and be broken to pieces, or the picture is like he's going to be... I like the way the Legacy Standard rendered it, saying, scatter you to any and everyone that opposes this king and his kingdom. And that's going to happen collectively to Israel as a whole for a while. They get judged for opposing God's son and the chosen king. But again, in verse 43, the verse before this, it was about a judgment for the nation as a whole. The kingdom will be taken from you all. But now things get very personal. He describes his judgment upon the individual, the one who falls on this stone, or when it falls on anyone. But there's hope even in that. Do you hear it? And it's this question. Yes, the the nation is going to be judged. That's all part of the plan of God. But what about you, individual? Will you be judged with them? Or will you come out from them, stop rejecting the king, and bow before him? Will you side with Jesus or your people? It's not too late. This is his point. And of course, there's a warning encouragement here to any of you who might be outside of Christ. If you stand with your sin, if you stand with the world, you stand with a love for your sin, that means you have made war with Christ, and you're going to lose He will crush you at the day of judgment. There's no winning here. So you must repent. You must come out of the darkness into his light. Find mercy at his feet. But but that's not only a word that's needful for unbelievers. But we need it too. We need this reminder. 
We need to remember what we've been saved out of, what we've been spared. And doing so will have at least two effects in your Christian walk. Maybe that carry us this week. And first it's this. If you remember what He saved you from, that's going to keep you from further sin. And if you remember what He saved you from, it'll endear this precious Savior to your heart. And to prove this or illustrate this point, I want to tell you a story. A pastor friend of mine had told me some time ago. He, he recounted a time that he had gone hiking with his boys, two young boys, and they were hiking up a mountain. And as they got to the top, they, they got to an overlook, or at least an overlook place, and it was kind of flat, so you could walk around most of the area there. But on one side of the ledge, it was split. There was like this crack that came in from the ledge, and it created this crag that wasn't too big, maybe a foot and a half or so big, even in a wider part of it. But... but through that ledge that dropped into the canyon, the way it overhang, it dropped a couple hundred feet down. So you had to be careful as you're walking around on the top, which means when you have two young boys and you lose an eye on them for a second, your heart starts to race, doesn't it? Where's my eight-year-old? So he whips around and he turns and sees his son jumping over the crag. That's where dad voice comes in, right? Mark, what are you doing? Stop, freeze, don't move. Stay right there. The boy obeyed, puzzled. Why is dad yelling at me? And so my friend came near near to him, carefully to the ledge. And he wanted to give him a tongue lashing. What are you thinking? But he could just tell the boy had no idea what kind of danger he was in. And so they got in their bellies and they crept to the crack and looked down. And at the sight, the boy gasped. He turned his clung and clung to his dad and sobbed. He had no clue what kind of danger he was in. And you can bet he respected that ledge from then on. He saw the danger of it. And he saw the love of his dad to come get him out of it. And that's, that's what we need a reminder, even this morning, what Christ has spared us from, don't we? And it might even seem harsh at times. When he uses the dad voice. But that's to wake us up of the danger, the real danger of sin and unbelief. Because truly, any sin is dangerous. Why? Because it pits you against Jesus. You can't coddle it. Sin is always dangerous. It's dangerous for your soul. It's dangerous for your peace. Dangerous for your joy. Dangerous for your testimony. Dangerous for your usefulness. It's deadly. And its consequences are devastating. Respect the danger he's called you out of as he delivered you from sin. Don't forget that. Especially as you are then tempted to then mess with sin, entertain sin, maybe jump over sin a little bit, tolerate it, see what's going to happen. No, remember his call. May he wake us up to that. But second, as you remember what he saved you from, the wrath he saved you from, the doom, the consequences he saved you out of, all that will move you to cling to him, to never let him go, like that boy did with his dad. Because you know that's where safety is. And you know he came out there because he loves you. He came down from heaven to come and deliver you and save you, even at great expense to himself that he took your sin and died for you. What greater treasure is there than Christ? A God who loves, who moves heaven to come save sinners. If you will recall that love and fight to fight for it in your mind to keep it there, that'll keep you clinging to him. 
So what do you see this morning as you look at Jesus? Do you see your treasure? Do you see this one who came for you, who sealed his love and bought it and delivered you at the cross represented by this table? May we never forget. Indeed, he commands us, do this in remembrance of me. Jesus bids us, because what will we then see? He is our greatest treasure. Let's thank him for that. Let's pray together. And as I pray, I'm going to ask the men that are designated to distribute the elements to come forward. Father, we do proclaim and rejoice in the gift of your Son, a gift for sinners, for rejecters, for mockers. We thank you for your work of your Spirit that shows us our sin, that shows us that we've been in the wrong, that shows us that there is a great Christ who forgives those who turn to your Son. And we proclaim at this table we have no hope in ourselves and even in our own reform. Our only hope is that Christ has died for our sins, that he's risen from the dead, he's given us his righteousness. You, O Jesus, are our only hope. And we proclaim that together as we come to this table for which you are due all the glory. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.